Well, good morning, Calvary Chapel. Happy Easter. Welcome to our live stream. I'll say this every single week that we're here. We wish you were all here. And I'm sure most of you wish you were here. It is a strange feeling walking around this building, not seeing any people. And it's a reminder the church really never was a building, it's the people. So we're all longing for the day where we're back together, uh, worshiping God, fellowshipping with one another. Uh, thank God for this technology. It's a beautiful thing. So uh, we're going to celebrate communion today. We know you're gathered in your homes with us, and we know that the Holy Spirit is moving. Uh, before I get to my message, I just want to thank some people who have been very generous to the church and me during this time, and a couple of shout-outs that are way overdue. When the news got out that I had uh, the coronavirus, I received many texts and emails and even cards in the mail that were just so uplifting and inspiring, and I just want to thank you guys for taking the time to do that. Kind of went to another level this week. I was sitting on my back porch Tuesday, and two different people showed up with soup and chicken cutlets, and it was such a welcomed experience, not only to receive that, but to talk to them out on our deck. The very next day, John Clifford, who's a pastor here who operates our table, brought my family a brisket. If you've ever had John's brisket, I'm telling you, if we sold it at the table, the line would be out the door. So we appreciate that, John. The next day, one of the Journey Kids workers dropped off a lasagna. And so uh, I lost 10 pounds during the virus, but thanks for fattening me up. I'm feeling a lot better and appreciate all of those who were so kind and generous. But I want to give a shout out to Carol Rauch, who works at the book barn. So when the pandemic started and we realized we couldn't buy books and we could still order on Amazon, there were several books I needed. And the book barn's out here in Chester County, not far from church. It's an old mansion that's been restored with three levels. And I asked Carol if she could open the book barn so I could sneak in, find what I needed, and leave. And when she found out that I had contracted the virus and, and was sick, she said, Pastor Bob, I'm going to pack these books up and I'm going to deliver them to you. Now here's what I want to tell you. Carol's 87 years old. She's my hero. She came, she dropped those books on my door, and I really appreciate it. So a shout out to Carol. Also want to thank all of you who have been so generous during this time. Like all ministries, our offerings are down, but we've decided not to talk a lot about money. So many of you continue to give via push pay on the web. Checks keep coming in. And uh, we've lived for 27 years by the motto, where God guides, he provides. So we feel like we're going to make it through this uh, lean season. We're paying all of our employees, continue to keep the building up to speed. So thanks for your prayers. Thanks for your generosity. Uh, we couldn't do this without all of you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 18. We're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane this Easter. Before we do, I want to pray and uh, have one selfish prayer for my wife's cousin named Helen. Uh, before this pandemic started, Helen came down and was diagnosed with liver cancer. Right now she has double pneumonia, she's in a hospital. It's a very trying time. She goes to Coastal Christian, became a brand new Christian about five years ago. Her, uh, Coastal's rallying around her, we're trying to rally around her. And so I wanna pray for her and our service. So would you join me? Father, we thank you that you are the God who's in control. You're the God of heaven. Lord, none of this happens without your understanding and your eye upon all of this. Lord, we studied a few weeks ago that you wept at the death of Lazarus. 
God, I know that you're weeping now. And so, God, we just pray for those who are sick and suffering. God, would you surround Helen with your love and with your just awesome grace and presence? God, she loves you, and we know you love her. And God, this is just a reminder that we can quarantine for years, but Lord, quarantine doesn't stop cancer. It doesn't stop all the tribulation you said might come. And so God, would you be generous? Would you be faithful? God, we're excited to look into your word. We're excited for all that you have for us this Easter. You are risen, and that's good news. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I want everybody to use their imagination just for a few minutes. It's Sunday, January 6, 2020. We just had a nice Christmas break. We all came back to church. Uh, John Riley led worship, very powerful. Taylor gave a few announcements, and then I came up to preach. When I came up to preach, I said, hey, guys, I don't know what 2020 will bring. It's a great year. Probably ahead of us, we'll set some goals, do some things. But then I added this, that I believed in three short months, April 12th, which was Easter, our church would be closed. Not only would our church be closed, every church in America would be closed, maybe the world. What would you have thought? Well, one of the things you should have thought is, I should look for a new church and a new pastor. Pastor Bob has lost his mind. Either that or maybe an atomic bomb hit New York City. What possibly could lead to that? Where I'm going with this is that you and I are making history today. This might be the first time in 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead that no one publicly will gather to celebrate the resurrection. To understand how remarkable this is and to really put it in perspective, think of all the wars and famines, pogroms, genocides, pestilence, natural disasters, and pandemics that have taken place in the last 2,000 years. The church, led by the Holy Spirit, has endured all of this. The church has stood down everything thrown at her for the last 2,000 years. To understand the irony of the times we're living in, I want to read you a short uh, little piece from an editorial that Peggy Noonan wrote in the Wall Street Journal last week. She lives right in the heart of the pandemic of the virus, New York City. Peggy said, everyone is fascinated that everything is closed, but liquor stores remain open. This is because there isn't a politician in the country stupid enough to prohibit alcohol in a national crisis. They may know on some level that no nation in history of the world has closed both its churches and its liquor stores simultaneously and survived. Russia, after the revolution, closed the churches, but it did its best to keep vodka available because they wanted everyone drunk, which is the only way to get through communism, and how Russia did get through communism. But Peggy says we're outdoing ourselves. The Associated Press reports alcoholic beverage sales rose 55% the week ending March 21st. Online liquor sales were up 243%. One executive with Nielsen Market Research Firm speculated that people were stocking up for a long haul at home. So there's going to be all these paradoxes, all these ironies of this pandemic, and everyone's going to have a story to tell. I want to tell you my fascinating little story about the pandemic. We get a lot of boxes dropped off at my house from Amazon and FedEx. My older children are in business, so every day 
uh, there are boxes that come to my house. But right when the pandemic started, a long rectangular box was delivered to my house. Went out on the porch and it was actually addressed to me. Hadn't remembered ordering anything, brought it inside, took out a penknife, opened it up, and there in the box was a beautiful, tailored, black tuxedo. Over the last year and a half, I have endured four black tie affairs where I only wore a sport coat. Felt very stupid and embarrassed and thought at 57 years old, I should break down and order my first tuxedo. I open the box, I look at that tuxedo, I go up, I put on a crisp white shirt, the bow tie that came with it, the cufflinks, and I looked in the mirror and I thought, I have fulfilled a cliche I have heard all of my life. I am all dressed up and have nowhere to go. My story of the pandemic in America will be in the midst of a crisis, a tuxedo was delivered to my door. And again, if you think of all the things and all the wars and famines that have gone on, for that to happen, uh, that'll probably be my story, and many of you will have your story. Churches are closed this Easter, but through the wonder of technology, we can all gather and celebrate what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. I want to remind everyone the Holy Spirit is still moving. The Holy Spirit moves through this building and home churches and churches that are meeting all around the country in their homes. The Holy Spirit still saves. He still does his work. I am convinced five years from now, when we do a baptism at Sizzling Summer, I'm going to ask somebody in the pool, tell me your story of coming to Christ. And that person's going to share a story, you're never going to believe it. Five years ago, when we were all quarantined, someone invited me into a live stream. I heard the gospel message, I accepted Christ as my Savior. People are emailing people, people are at home, they're reading things. The Holy Spirit is moving and will continue to move. And can I tell you all this? The world doesn't end with a virus. We studied the book of Revelation last year. This isn't how it ends. We will overcome. We'll get back to normal. So, as an introduction, let's turn now to John chapter 18. And I want to read this text. In verse 1, it said, When Jesus had spoken these words, and those were the words he spoke to his disciples, at the last Passover in the upper room, he went out with his men over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received, listen to this, a detachment of troops. Scholars say that could be anywhere from 60 to 600. I think it was probably the former. And they were there, these troops, also with the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. They were expecting a fight. Peter had a sword. It was Passover. The Jews during Passover always felt a spirit of emancipation. And so these men were looking for a fight. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And the he's in italics. He literally said, I am. The same words that came from the burning bush from God himself. When he said, I am, the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. It can only be one of two things. They either drew back in a military form, waiting for a fight, or the power and glory of Jesus went out. And I think it's the latter. 
Then they asked him again, saying, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. The saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of all you gave me, I've lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear, and John tells us the servant's name was Malchus. Now, Luke tells us Jesus put his ear on and restored him to health, which probably saved Peter and all the other disciples' lives. Jesus also told Peter in another gospel, put your sword away, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. But John remembers this, Jesus telling Peter, put your sword into your sheath, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me to drink? I've been to the Garden of Gethsemane many times, one of my favorite places in Israel. John tells us here that it was a private garden, it still is today. I think we have a picture here from 2016. Uh, this is Monica and I at the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, it's one of our favorite places. Uh, we all love gardens. One of the beautiful things about this garden is that it's filled with olive trees. Again, if you look at this picture, olive trees, some of them 250 years old. They're short, they're stubby, and it just makes for a very relaxing, calm place. I believe Jesus went here often with his disciples because Jerusalem was a crowded city, especially during Passover. The city would have swelled from maybe 85,000 people to 400,000 people. And this was a place where they could go and pray. It was a place of calm and peace. And they make their final walk there. And if you think of all the walks Jesus had with his disciples in three years, they would walk to the Galilee, they would walk to Jerusalem, they would walk to Caesarea Philippi. Can you imagine what those walks were like? Can you imagine the studies of the Old Testament Jesus gave them or told them about life before even creation? We'll never know what those walks were like, but Jesus was training his men. And now they make one final walk, a walk to a place where Jesus, I'm sure, struggled to even go to. When they get to this place, Jesus begins to pray with his men, and the other gospel writers tell us three different times Jesus comes to the disciples and says the words we're familiar with, could you not tarry one hour? Now, preachers seize on this, and they put guilt on people telling us we should pray longer and we should pray more often. But I want to look at it from a different perspective. These guys had had a very long night. What transpired in that upper room takes John five chapters to tell us about. They're there to celebrate the final Passover heaven would observe. And it begins by Jesus taking a servant's towel, girding it around his waist, and washing the disciples' feet. That would be the enduring lesson he would leave, leave to church leadership for all time. He then identifies his betrayer, and he begins a very long teaching, first about heaven, the place he's preparing for them. He begins to talk about a peace that will be available to them after he's gone. He talks about how the world will hate them and their message, but they can overcome the world. Talks about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, another comforter that will come. In John 15, he gives them that wonderful teaching about abiding in the vine and that without the vine, we can't bear any fruit. That even though Jesus won't be there anymore, we have to stay connected to him. He talks about many things that will happen after he's gone. They go through the Passover, which is quite lengthy. We did one at my house last night. It takes over an hour. And then they sang a hymn. 
And they made that mile and a half walk to Garden of Gethsemane. Here's what I marvel at. This is the God of the universe. Fully man, fully God. The one who created the world and all the people involved in this narrative. I read the Gospels and so many times Jesus would retreat from the crowds and he would want to be alone, whether on a mountain or here in the garden, to commune with his father. This was a person who at a snap of a finger could call 10,000 angels. And yet through all of this, Jesus feels alone. He feels empty. The one thing he desires at this time is human companionship. We have to ask the question, why? Fully God, fully man. Why would Jesus desire this companionship? I think there's a singular answer. Before I give you that answer, I want to talk about what's going on literally for many of you in the pandemic. So many of us are quarantined with our families. A lot of you have your kids running around, and I know that's a challenge. My house has five people, and that's a challenge, but we have three floors. But so many people during this time are alone. I can't imagine three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. What a difficult time that must be. This is why we're encouraging our church family to write cards, stay connected, get on Facebook or Zoom, pick up the phone and call people. It's a very difficult time. To answer the question why Jesus felt so alone, we have to look at his final prayer before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in John chapter 17, verse 20, where he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. They may behold my glory which you gave me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared it to them your name, and will declare it, that they love with a love which you have loved me, and I might be in them, and you in me. I believe this prayer unlocks what Jesus was feeling in the garden. Whatever was going on in that garden, Jesus was about to make a decision. I believe all of hell was open before him. The reality that fully God and fully man, that he would be estranged from the Father, that sin would engulf him, was all a reality in that garden. Everything that hell could throw at him, Satan himself, must have been in that place. The idea that he would be the sacrificial lamb, the anguish of the cross, was so powerful that in Jesus' human frame, one of the gospel writers tells us, that the stress was so difficult that he sweat great drops of blood. This is actually a medical condition where a body can be so stressed that the capillaries burst, spill out into the perspiration, and actually come through the pores of our skin. Whatever was going on in the garden, the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of godliness, Jesus felt it at a deep level. 
Now the truth is, we're all going to face our Gethsemanes. You and I, as we walk in this life, we will go to a place where we're pressed. That's what Gethsemane means. It's the place of the pressing. Most of you know that you take olives, you put them on a mill or a grinder, and you squeeze them very hard until the oil flows out. Gethsemane was a place where Jesus was pressed. We all face our Gethsemanes. Some of you have already faced them. Some of you, it's in the future. For some of you, it may be this pandemic. For all the people that can work at home and are going to get government checks, there's people that rely on tips and who have been laid off. We have small businessmen in our church who are losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. And for many people, this will be their Gethsemane. The thing about Gethsemane is it's the place none of us want to go. It's a place I want to avoid. None of us want to be pressed to this level. None of us want to go through the anguish. It's a place where faith is tested at a high level. I believe this pandemic is going to test the faith of many. I think a lot of consumer Christians are going to fall by the wayside. I think a lot of serious Christians are going to get stronger. I think our churches are going to be more vibrant. We're going to understand what really matters. Gethsemane is a place that not only Jesus faced, but Job faced, and Joseph, and Daniel, and so many others. But here's what I am fascinated about. Jesus went there willingly. He knew what that garden was all about. He knew the decision that was to be made, and unlike you and unlike me, he went there willingly. And many people wonder why. Was it because he was God? No, he was fully God and fully man. I think the writer of the Hebrews nails it in chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, listen to this, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The glory that was set before Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was you and it was me. This is why he was able to endure. Gethsemane is the place where the decision was made. Yes, it would happen on the cross. Yes, he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he would shed his blood, rise from the dead, be assumed into heaven. But the decision to go through with this, where he would say, Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done, was made in Gethsemane. Gethsemane was the place where he chose you. Max Lucado, in one of his books, puts it so eloquently. He said, when Jesus had to choose between going to heaven without you or going to hell for you, he chose to go to hell for you. We all need to meditate on that for a little bit. We're in this era of negative news, and hopefully you're not watching a lot of news, but we're watching people die, and we're, we're, we're watching the economy tank. We're getting all this sensationalized bad news. Maybe one of the things we can meditate on is he chose us. It's pretty remarkable. 
Maybe God hasn't been part of your life for a long, long time. Maybe you've been self-sufficient. Maybe life has kind of been cruising and you didn't understand the God peace. You didn't have to figure anything out. Maybe you're watching today and you're struggling even believing in God, especially with all that's going on. How could God be in control when bad things are happening? Maybe because of the circumstances of life, you're struggling to believe that God cares or loves us. There's something powerful about someone choosing us. That's why we love weddings. You go to a wedding and there's all this pomp and circumstance, but, but at the core of a wedding is the exchanging of vows between two people where they basically say, I chose you. That's powerful. In a world that is cold and alone and dark, that's one of the prized things we have. It's the same thing with friendship. Someone says, I choose you. For all of your faults and all of your wonderful traits, I choose to walk through life with you. Even when we're hired at a job, someone reads our resume, they choose us. I remember the first time I made a basketball team. The coach chose me to be on that team. There's a story I've saved for 15 years in a folder. Lost the folder, had to find it on the web. It's a story of Mary. I want to read it to you. Mary had grown up knowing she was different from the other kids, and she hated it. She was born with a cleft palate and had to bear the jokes and stares of cruel children who teased her nonstop about her misshaped lip, crook-nosed, and garbled speech. With all the teasing, Mary grew up hating the fact that she was different. She was convinced that no one outside of her family could or would ever love her. Until she entered Mrs. Leonard's class. Mrs. Leonard had a warm smile, round face, shiny brown hair. While everyone in her class liked her, Mary came to love Mrs. Leonard. In the 1950s, it was common for teachers to give their children an annual hearing test. Some of you may have remembered this. However, in Mary's case, in addition to her cleft palate, she was ba barely able to hear out of one ear. Determined not to let the other children have another difference to point out, she would cheat on the test each year. The whisper test was given by having a child walk to the classroom door, turn sideways, close on one ear with a finger, and repeat something with the teacher whispered. Mary turned her bad ear towards her teacher and pretended to cover her good ear. She knew that teachers would often say things like, the sky is blue, or what's the color of your shoes? But not on that day. Surely God put seven words in Mrs. Leonard's mouth that day that changed Mary's life forever. When the whisper test came, Mary heard the words, I wish you were my little girl. I choose you. That story rips me every time I read it. The power of someone choosing us. It's the power of Easter. It's the hope of Easter. With all the competing voices in our world that maybe God's dead or maybe God doesn't care or this is the way or that's the way. The logic of Easter is that God himself made a decision. He made a decision to become man and in a garden made a decision to die for you and to die for me. In a garden, in the book of Genesis, there was the first man, his name was Adam. Adam, who was given all of abundance and a beautiful wife and a mission to live out, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, disobeyed God. 
He told God, not God's will will be done, but his will will be done. And a virus entered our world. It's called sin. The world was fallen, and every person born after that was born in sin. That may have been the worst decision a human being's ever made. But the logic of Easter is another man, the second Adam, came, and in a garden made a far different decision. He made a decision to drink the cup of God's wrath, to be the final lamb sacrificed that you and I might live. It's the beauty and the power of Easter. But I got to tell you this, and here's where the logic comes in. Jesus' decision, without your decision, is to no effect. You see, Jesus' wonderful decision and execution on the cross and rising from the dead, without your decision, means nothing. John tells us that to as many as believed, he gave the power to become sons of God. John tells us in John 3, 16 that whoever would believe on him would have everlasting life. John said he wrote his entire gospel that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and by believing you would have life in his name. Not only life eternal, but life here and now. In other words, there would be a transformation, a metamorphosis for those who would accept Jesus' decision and ultimate death and resurrection. Multiple millions through the centuries have made this decision. We've heard countless testimonies and stories. Many are in this room and in homes today could tell you a similar story. But I want to tell you an illustration that's pertinent that might help you out. When I tested positive for COVID-19, I found out days later that I could actually give blood through the Red Cross that would save somebody's life. Because I have the antibodies for COVID-19, my blood injected into someone else's body could possibly save them from this virus. I think you all know where I'm going. Adam transmitted to each and every one of us the power of sin. Jesus transmitted to every one of us through his shed blood the antibodies of sin that we might truly live. This is the gospel. God chose you, he loves you, and he died for you. His blood that was shed was a transaction that makes us fully alive. In a minute, I'm going to share a prayer where you can invite Jesus Christ into your life, where his shed blood, his decision with your decision can set you free. But it is Easter, and it's in my DNA. I give, give you one apologetic you guys hear me talk every Easter about the ripples of the resurrection, and I've given you so many proofs that what happened 2,000 years, a weekend changed the world. So can I leave you with one apologetic? When Jesus died and was raised from the dead, he appeared to Mary in the garden, then to the 12, then to over 500 over a period of time. Is anyone surprised that the Jews or no Roman officials ever put out an edict on why or what happened to the body of Jesus? Now, they said it before that, you know, he said he would rise again, and they said the disciples are going to steal the body, but Pilate did something about that. He put 16 trained Roman soldiers at the tomb. We know where the tomb was. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. 
When Jesus rose again and the gospel began to spread, why didn't Pilate, with all the force of Rome, A, produce the body, or B, lock the disciples up until they confessed where they had placed the body? Why would they allow 3,000 people to believe and then 5,000? Why would they allow the world to be turned upside down if they knew where the body was? And the answer is they didn't because Jesus was risen like he said he would. It's one of the great apologetics of our faith. I want to invite you into a decision today. A decision to turn from your sin, to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the God of the universe, the Savior of the world. The Bible says if any man be born again, he's a new creation. Born, not of the flesh, not of your mother's womb, but born and recreated of the Spirit. There's so many ways this happens. It's not a single prayer. The prayer only signifies what already has happened in our hearts. Romans says, with the heart we believe, with the mouth we make confession. So if you're out there on a live stream or watch this later or listen by audio, the prayer goes something like this. Lord, I'm a sinner and I desperately need a savior. Lord, out of all the things that have gone on in the planet, out of all the voices and creeds and covenants, Lord, I believe that you are God that you came and became the Passover lamb, shed your blood for my sins, I ask you into my life. I ask you to change me from the inside out, to breathe life into me, to give me a brand new heart and a brand new start. I want to live for you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. If you said that prayer for the first time, I challenge you to pick up a Bible, go online, type in you're a new Christian, and let God's word begin to feed you and sustain you. We want to end our service by celebrating communion. Obviously, you're not here. But we asked you in an email, and I think at the beginning of the service, to find a little bit of grape juice, maybe some water, a piece of bread. I shared earlier that Jesus celebrated with his disciples the last Passover heaven ever observed. Jesus replaced it with what we call the Lord's Supper, the new covenant. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body which will be broken. It's still the matzah. Remember they left Egypt in haste so the bread couldn't rise. The matzah has holes. He was pierced and wounded for our transgressions. It has stripes. By his stripes we're healed. So now, as they were looking forward in the Passover, we're looking backwards to the cross, to the body of Jesus. Would you take the bread wherever you are? And Father, we thank you on this Easter that Jesus said yes and chose us. Lord, this is a mystical symbol of how he came into our lives and that we're part of one body. And we eat by faith in Jesus' name. Supper was ended. Jesus took the cup. 
said, this is my blood which will be shed for all mankind. And I'll never drink of the fruit of the vine till I drink it with you new in the kingdom of God. The reality that there is life beyond this life. A symbol that it's through blood that we are saved. That the life of the flesh is in the blood and Jesus shed his blood for us. Let's drink. Taylor talked about a lot of the interactive content we'll have this week. Guys, stay connected with us. Uh, she talked earlier about my son Mike doing mere Christianity this week. We'll do it live right here. We'll do it in an interactive format. We'll figure out a way where you can type in questions. Mike loves interaction. We'll end the service with Mike explaining mere Christianity.